0: Welcome to episode 78 of FRT. I'm Brad Carr in Washington. It's a big time here for policy discussions around digital finance, between the IIF and IMF and World Bank annual meetings, the G20 Finance Minister's meetings, a big series of FSB publications, and also some others from the ECB, the Bank of Japan, the CPMI, and we'll continue many of those discussions into DC FinTech Week very shortly. As with this time last year, I'll pair up with Chris Brummer of Georgetown University and the host of FinTech Beat to bring you a download across all of that But for this episode, we're gonna zero in specifically on digital identity. That being a foundational technology that has only become even more important through the COVID crisis and the rapid transition of so many sectors of the economy this year. You might recall that we discussed the Open Digital Trust Initiative on episode 73 with Don Thibault of the OpenID Foundation and Rod Boothby and Daniel Puharfen of Santander. One of the big themes in our IIF work stream on that initiative is on interoperability with other systems. Today, we'll widen the aperture and look a bit further at the broader landscape. Taking advantage of all the current policy and expert exchanges, this episode features discussions from our major IIF events. Firstly, we'll hear from a panel discussion we held on identity and inclusion as part of the IIF Digital Interchange, where I was privileged to moderate a discussion with Hisham Ez Al Arab, the chairman of CIB Bank in Egypt, Lyndon Dawson of Ping Identity, and Tilman Urbeck of Flourish Ventures. We'll then continue with a couple of extracts from the digital identity panel in the IIF Annual Membership Meeting where Vicky Roig of Santander took on the moderation duties with our panelists, Vivian Arts of Refinitiv, Sopnendu Mahanti of the Monetary Authority of Singapore, and Nat Sakamura, the chairman of the OpenID Foundation. We begin with the identity and inclusion discussion, starting with Tillman.
1: The crisis, the lockdown has, has, has shown us all that digital identity is a very critical element to conduct our lives. We were trying to work from home, shop from home. Um, uh, People, courts are sitting uh, digitally. Marriages are being concluded digitally. So this entire notion of digital identity is a far bigger topic than um, financial inclusion, if you will. Uh, At the same time, financial inclusion is a far bigger topic than digital identity. Digital identity is a critical enabler to promote financial inclusion. It lowers costs, it makes things easier, it it allows financial services providers to comply with regulation. But in order to really reach people who have previously been, been excluded, you also need the right products, the right services at the right cost. They must actually help them improve their lives. So digital identity, hugely important. In the times that we are living, a bigger topic than just financial inclusion, and within financial inclusion, a necessary but not condition, uh, necessary but not sufficient condition for success.
0: Lyndon, if I can turn to you, and you know, I think one of these, one of the points you've raised with me before was about the the notion of no user left behind, and I want to make a linkage here to a, a comment that Carlos Torres Villa, BBVA's chairman, made in our Monday session about the the criticality of ensuring that digitalisation does not leave behind the the most vulnerable. So I guess we kind of have this sense of, on one hand, there's the great positive story of the opportunity to use digitalisation to reach people that have otherwise been historically excluded, some of what Hisham was talking about and and expanding that reach. But there's also, I guess, the the risk or the the negative that we need to make sure we avoid, that we don't digitalise in a way that excludes some people who are currently part of the network. I know it's something that the Swedes and the the Canadians have talked a lot about with the criticality of ensuring that the underlying technical infrastructure is there to, to support. But I'm wondering if I can get your views here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, in a previous role, I was the head of identity, trust and safety at Australia Post, and I was responsible for clearing the path forward for a digital ID product. And um, we had, uh, because we were a government owned enterprise, uh, so this becomes particularly relevant for government agencies or anyone dealing with government. Um, It's everyone, everywhere, every day. Um, And so Uh, For me, inclusion isn't just uh, socioeconomic, who has a device, who hasn't got a device, who's got the internet, hasn't got the internet. Uh, It isn't just geographic, um, which, of course, digitisation has improved uh, the situation. Uh, If you take, say, Indonesia, for example, I was working with a bank transformation over there and, and Indonesia is really a collection of islands and so they're leapfrogging ahead with a lot of their digital transformation because they can go straight to mo- they go to mobile rather than building bricks and mortar so it's not but it's not just socio-economic or geographic it's also thinking about your all of the users and how they engage with the platform and making sure that when you're building your platforms um And and I've seen this from a very practical sense uh, down in the trenches with the teams, the identity and access management teams who are building uh, and transforming uh, large banks, making sure that you're conducting user testing all the way along uh, and that the teams who are building these and and undergoing the the transformation are as diverse as the user base. Uh, Otherwise, you can risk building something that suits only one cohort of, of, um, of your customer base.
0: It's a really important point, and it's one that I think uh, is often talked about in the the realm of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence, but probably not always given sufficient focus in in other areas of design. Um, yeah, you know, we've heard a number of, of leading practitioners in the US talk about if you're walking into a room of developers that are working on an AI uh, program, you want to ensure that there is some ethnic and lifestyle uh, variances amongst those people. And uh, in fact, Kathy Bessent at the at Bank of America tells the great story about how. She learned to drive in Michigan where the, the message was when you're driving in the ice and you see a deer on the road, you don't swerve to avoid the deer. Probably a bit like you and I learned about kangaroos on the road in Australia. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it troubles yes. her when she sees um, autonomous vehicles being taught and programmed by people who have spent their whole lives living in cities. Um, but it's a, a reminder I think that we need to, that you're giving that we need to, to have that same principle in mind uh, beyond necessarily algorithms but all parts of the, the user experience, right?
2: Yeah, and all parts of the digital transformation journey. Um, so as, a, say, a bank is engaging on, uh, and, and I certainly work with a lot of banks who are are going through the migration from the, as um, Candido was talking about, uh, the migration of, you know, from the old legacy stacks, these kind of Frankenstein systems that are holding silos of data that are of no use to anyone and probably a security risk, and they're going through this process of migrating them onto the new stack You know, making sure that in that process, you're thinking about all of the users that that um, will be affected in that process. So at a very practical level, you need diverse teams and lots of user testing. So diverse user testing all the way along. User testing isn't something you just sort of add on at the end and hope everyone likes it. It's something that you have to test and learn all the way through.
0: I'd like to continue in a moment with the theme of, of perhaps identifying some of the, the success stories. And you mentioned the case, uh, Lyndon, about uh, working with an Indonesian bank. But perhaps I'd like to get some views across the panel around uh, the role of identity as, as a cue for broader participation in the economy, and maybe not just at the consumer level. And, and Tillman, you know, perhaps I'll, I'll turn to you first here, but thinking of how SMEs are able to participate in this new economy that's been um, so rapidly and dramatically uh, accelerated through the, the COVID period. You know, I think of, for instance, an SME that has suddenly had to reinvent itself as an e-commerce business. Um, and in some cases, it's not just uh, identifying that the customer is someone whose money you can take and that the payment works. Sometimes you need to be able to identify that they are an eligible customer. For instance, if you're selling alcohol or something that's got an age restriction attached to it um, and how you do that with no longer in-person transactions and no longer in-person identity Some of the solutions like the Open Digital Trust Initiative, I think are really critical about helping to enable that and provide that as a basis for SMEs activity in the the broader economy in this world. But please, can I get your thoughts on that, Tillman?
1: If you think about, again, how you conduct your life, right? You you have your wallet and in the wallet is um, your credit card, so there's a payment mechanism, but there's also the driver's license that... Proves uh, your age if you want to buy alcohol, uh, in, in at least in the United States, you have to be 21 in most places, in a physical store, have your health insurance card in there, all that type of stuff. Um, as we increasingly live in a digital world, and that is true before the pandemic, and that's true in emerging markets, uh, and that is true for small businesses and, and, and consumers, the, the, the more we could use that information that used to be in my physical wallet, the more we could use that um, in, in a digital way, uh, the easier life gets for us as users and consumers and obviously for the businesses on the other side providing the services. And we really should have a regime I would love to hear more from from Linden about this, we really should have a regime that includes everybody, a digital identity regime that includes everybody. That that was already mentioned. I think it should be a regime as well that is very transparent. So if somebody authenticates my identity, I should know about that. Uh, It should protect my privacy, right? It should only pull the type of information that is really needed. So for example, or the example that resonates a lot with people is is the the buying alcohol right the it should only be proven the fact that i'm 21 they don't need to know my birth date exactly my address my telephone number so that they can harass me afterwards so these notions of inclusivity transparency around the usage uh privacy of of, of the data proportionality and then it needs to be interoperable right so Right now we have this multitude of different things that we need to use and that's costly, it's replicative. So I do think there is a a sort of digital identity regime uh, to be developed and it has a public utility character to it in my interpretation and that's why initiatives like uh, um, uh, uh, Trust Canada or, or, or Trust Frameworks in the US in the UK, everybody is working on that and, and that's, from my perspective that's the right way to go
0: uh, Tillman, you've you've pretty much described exactly what we're uh, the IF and the OpenID Foundation are working on as part of the, the Open Digital Trust Initiative and indeed to your point about um, yeah, a small business for instance doesn't want to necessarily learn a customer's date of birth because then they have to store that and protect that and there's Depending, right. on, depending on your jurisdiction, potentially some very large fines pending if you don't sufficiently protect that. It reminds me of the analogy about data that, uh, that Scott Farrell from the Australian Consumer Data Right uh, study gave, which is that it's, it's not the new oil, it's the new uranium, that it's, it has a half-life, that it decays, but it's, it's, it's toxic and you need to, to protect it and store it. So the scenario where a trusted identity provider, which might be, for instance, a bank, is able to validate a customer with an answer of yes rather than the the actual date of birth, I think is something that is you know, potentially very powerful and, and uh, enabling for a, a small business. Um, so when you gave a cue to Lyndon there, perhaps if I can let Lyndon react and then Hisham, if we can come to you, because I'm sure that the SME uh, sector is a very important one for you also, but but Lyndon.
2: Yeah, thank you. I absolutely agree with everything that, uh, that you were saying. I think it would be, that is a... a dream goal to have an interoperability globally, uh, to have something that that can be transparent, um, some standards that people are all working to, but that still has the flexibility to recognise cultural differences between nation states, um, different uh, policies, different laws. Uh, I think the key to that really at its core sort of philosophically is that you have to put the user in the centre of everything and you have to give them control you have to give them choice uh, you have to allow them to see at a more fine-grained level what it is they're agreeing to and what they're not agreeing to and you have to give them the right to be forgotten or the right to to withdraw their consent um, there are some challenges around um, folks who aren't uh, in a position to give consent, so say children or people who um, may have to engage in delegated authority, so if they're very elderly, for example. So there are some cases that do need to be addressed in in that way, but I think uh, somewhere where we can put the user in the centre and allow people that choice would be ideal. That would be amazing. But certainly um, from my experience working, uh, certainly working um at Australia Post, one of the big challenges was who will own the risk? So I can create this great digital identity platform, but will the bouncer on the other side accept that as um, an appropriate yes, no, this person is legally allowed to come into the nightclub? It's who catches it on the other side is really important, and, and will they be protected by government regulations? That's the million-dollar question, I think.
0: That's a great point, um, Hisham. Would you like to add to that? And and particularly with the lens of you know where at, at CIB you not only are committed to extending the reach for your consumer customers, but also the way that you support small business.
3: I want to add one point about the digital identity before I move to that point. It's it's not only about the personal data, it's about personal behavior as well. Uh, It's like 360 degrees holistic look at the individual that becomes very hard even if if people have the same birthday, almost the same name to mix them up because of the different behavior. Uh, The most trusted place where you can have the entire data, I think the banking sector is where uh, historically and I think in the future would be the right place where uh, they can preserve the, the customer secrecy and the customer data. Uh, moving to how to use the, the data there, either individuals or, or, or small businesses, um, the, the biggest challenge that uh, private small businesses have is that when they deal with banks, uh, they deal with banks who don't understand very much how the, the small business run their operation. Uh, and fortunately, their off-takers or suppliers, they know them better than their bankers. Uh, the banker have all the information about them, but their behavior is much better understood by the supplier and the off-taker. So, I I think moving uh, the, uh, the the credit parts of financing SMEs from just a cash flow and projection. To uh, payment and behavior is very important because this is exactly how suppliers give facility to their small businesses or off takers give them advances for their business and unless banks move their business lending model from the traditional corporate lending to a behavior lending uh, as if i'm a small business even if the cost is higher i would rather prefer to get my financing from my supplier or off-taker. We have been dealing together for for many years rather than borrowing from banks. It's quite complicated, the SME financing. Uh, from, from our side at, at CIB, when we looked at SME, we looked at what's missing there is the financial services, payment, payrolls, because most of the SMEs, the majority of their business is in cash. So the first step is to understand their behavior is moving that cash into the bank, like the point of sales rather than selling cash. You sell through point of sale uh, rather than paying your employees in cash. You pay them through the wallet to their uh, straight to their account. Then we build information. And this is what we call it uh, an SMA the identity. It's an, another behavior identity for that small business. The same like
0: the uh, I should add that we're focusing this FRT episode on digital identity, but there were some other great points made, in particular by Hisham, about some of the opportunities in financial inclusion more broadly. I really liked a point he made about the changing economics in reaching and serving customers. And Hisham stressed that as we shift our focus from branches to devices, which I think increasingly reflects customer preferences anyway, millions of people that weren't previously profitable as potential customers suddenly become so. Hisham cited CIB's efforts in this space in Egypt, but he also underlined that it really needs that mindset shift in repositioning the bank strategy from branches to devices. Let's turn now to the IAF annual membership meeting. Initially continuing the theme of supporting SMEs, we start with Vivian Arts, putting some of Refinitiv's initiatives for SMEs into context before Sopnendu Mahanti shares some of the great emerging developments in India, Singapore and Thailand.
4: At Refinitiv, we offer products which help identify um, heightened regulatory risk um, and individuals and entities that may have a higher level of risk of involvement with uh, money laundering. Um, Digital identity is actually the step before that. So um, what we do in terms of supporting SMEs is that the, the opportunity for digital identity is that it enables SMEs to participate in the global economy. Um, and we know how important that is, uh, particularly for, for many jurisdictions, um, for example, the UK and Europe, where more than 90% of all businesses are indeed um, SMEs. And it's particularly important, again, in this environment, when we are further apart from each other, um, where they're, you know, when you, you're not able to deal in an in-person way, or to achieve in-person identification, so enabling identification um, and compliance with AML obligations um, is actually uh, very can be increasingly challenging uh, during these times. So one of one of the solutions that we offer is um, Qual ID, and that does a number of things. It, it, it's a, it's a sort of combination via an API technology which does. Uh, digital identity verification, which checks that a person actually exists, that they say um, who they, they are, who they say they are, um, com- by comparing the information they've provided to information from independent sources. Uh, we do uh, doc- document proofing to identify um, if the document is uh, legitimate. And then uh, Quality also enables risk screening, which is also hugely important and identifies potential risk uh, to help the user make informed decisions um, about that particular entity or person. So it's a sort of a three-part comprehensive unique solution that helps uh, companies onboard uh, customers um, and to also reduce for- fraud and manage um, their risk. So it's not a digital identity. It is a process um, that enables better digital identity verification um, and document proofing and risk screening um, as, a, as a potential solution there.
5: I think the, the one piece I forgot to mention that uh, during the crisis also we saw there's a need for interoperable of the IDs. India has a fabulous ID system, but a lot of migrant workers, Indian migrant workers who stay outside of the country, they need to remit money back home and they, they they can't use that national ID system because they have to use back to the the whole kind of complicated payment uh, systems to send money back home. And so had it been a case, if this, this national IDs are interoperable in many sense, that every con- different country recognize respective ID as a trusted uh, identifier to use as a proxy to send money, I think we will be solving a lot of this unmet need of migrant workers sending money back home, the huge remittance corridor. This is towards your inclusion question. So interoperating IDs recognized by different jurisdictions is a key open policy question out there. And the second point uh, on the same space uh, is around uh, uh, how do we connect uh, domestic payment system where the national proxy has been the ID systems to different country. As an example, Singapore and Thailand will be the first country globally Uh, hopefully by March, sometime in March next year, to able to send each resident of each other country can send to each other money by just knowing their mobile phone number as a proxy, which means the respective systems are interoperable at a certain layer. So having this data systems connected, having this payment system connected using common proxy like national ID to talk to each other becomes the end state we are trying to go. It solves inclusion challenges, it solves the global trade recovery post-COVID-19. It also solves a lot of the uh, growing digital economy, which is critical for a lot of COVID-19 recovery process.
0: Building on his insights on some of the great opportunities with identity for remittances and payments there, you'll notice that Sopnindu starts to highlight the critical need for connectedness across borders and interoperability. This theme continues in the panel discussion, so let's pick that up as they move directly onto this interoperability topic.
5: I have a very simple uh, frame. Uh, to think about this. I think my view is every country should start building the basic infrastructure, a a, a clean ID system, a trusted ID system, a trusted data system, minimal set of data you can collect and validate, and a payment system which is highly interoperable, and lastly, an electronic consent system. Because if you don't have this four element, very hard to put policies in work because we are talking of electronic transactions, we are talking of electronic verification, and this needs all the four to work in tandem. So having a, a core trusted foundational infrastructure is the first step before you think about cross-border. Once you get that and you put the right policy, right legal framework, right uh, uh, trust uh, c- trust governance around that, and you build uh, enough use case to understand how they operate, you start thinking about how do I start now building a corridor of transactions and I use the word corridor because it's hard to imagine that everybody will wake up and say we all agree. So I think the step, second step is you just have to build through some friendly country of yours and start building trusted data corridor, trusted ID corridor and some amount of use case driven uh, uh, processes which can operate on these two system talking to each other. It could be a payment system that everybody needs to talk to and maybe that's the way to start And the last piece is infrastructure availability and we should not forget that the system failure will can cause catastrophic uh, exclusion challenges. You must have a, a stable internet a broadband network infrastructure available. Of course there are many claims of creating low low bandwidth low code consumption system, but you must have a, a sufficient basic infrastructure available, to operate. The last thing you want to do, you put a highly electronic uh, 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 dependent system, and you deny somebody a certain services because that person had a system failure, and that can be a life la- life and death situation for many people. So have a infrastructure which is reliable and twenty four seven failure failure resistance is critical for the success. We, we got another
4: question about our uh, one of our participants uh, about Inter, well, we talked, Vivian. Uh, you mentioned that, and that was your last point about it should be borderless, right? And the question is like, what technology and uh, regulatory aspects need to be addressed? I know, so you, know, you were mentioning like you need basic infrastructure, but how do you make it work, or where do you start when you think cross-border?
5: I'm, I'm, I, have a, I have a simple response to that. It can be a response as you 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 start with what serves your interest most, and most countries will agree that moving money uh, between each other using some kind of i d system and data system will be the first one so use case is perhaps the most clear incentive driven approach to start connecting each other
4: i mean they're just they're two fundamentally important things isn't it about um the actual Uh, physical infrastructure interoperability is is huge, but we have a basic platform there in terms of the internet. Um, But there are many protocols that I think and standards that we could think about embracing in order to achieve better interoperability. And there is a general clamor at the moment to achieve greater standardization in terms of data um, systems and processes in order to better facilitate um, the sharing of data, whether that's financial data personal data or any other data as the case may be um, and that that is one issue um, which is a, a, a technical and governance challenge. The other challenge I think is a regulatory challenge and what's interesting is that we're seeing an increase in um, localization really, data localization um, across the world. Um, Sometimes privacy laws are leveraged in order to localize data. Sometimes it's outsourcing laws. Sometimes it's KYC laws. You must keep a physical copy of XYZ data locally in your office. Um, And it's, you know, I think we need to update our perceptions on really why does information need to be kept physically, locally, can we reach an understanding and a level of assurance that if it is accessible, it doesn't really matter where it is physically located? Does it really matter that the server is downstairs underneath you, or does it matter if it's in the country next door, provided you can access the information immediately and in a timely way? Um, An interesting uh, development is that you would think that with two-thirds of the world um, now having privacy legislation, that that would create greater consistency and greater data sharing. But actually, it appears to be creating, in many instances, more divergence than convergence um, in this space. And you know when we look at how many countries are struggling with um, concepts around data adequacy, and adequacy assessments. I mean, we just saw recently the U.S. Privacy Shield fell um, as a as a, as a uh, deemed to be an inadequate uh, measure or basis for data transfers from the EU uh, to to the U.S. Um, data transfers are just so fundamentally important, not just digital identity, but across the board. And I think that we need to be focusing on at the regulatory and policy level is how do we find the convergence and the similarities, the understanding that we need to offer accountable rights to individuals and that we need to access and use data responsibly. And that can be the basis for data sharing, as opposed to perhaps seeking for the differences of which there will always be far too many to solve. So I think it's a technical and a regulatory issue, but it's certainly time from a privacy regulatory perspective, to start helping to address these issues so that privacy can support digital identity, so that it is trustworthy, robust, and able to be leveraged internationally. Because I think there is the opportunity is to be part of the solution, rather than seen as a potential problem or a hurdle. Thank you, Murasan. What about uh, the challenges on the user side? What would you need to have uh, end users feel comfortable and increase adoption? What, what are your perspectives?
6: So, from the user point of view, um, we need to get a uh, um, transparent and trustworthy kind of user experience in general. Um, from for an end user, what is going on in digital is often very, very difficult to understand. And um, the technology providers and the business providers actually have to help them understand and have peace of mind in, transa- in transacting with, in, with the digital majors. And that is, you know, not only in that, usually people tend to try to do it with a, you know, textual explanation, but that doesn't work really well. It should be built into the user experience, the user interface and things like that. So um, that's the first thing. And they also learn from the consistency. So we tend to, Characterize trust being the consistency, in the sense that the expected outcome will come with the same action. And that kind of consistency across the, uh, the businesses that they're interacting with and across the borders that they're interacting with is important. So we have to also think about something like that.
0: I think it's very appropriate that this panel gravitated so much to the point about interoperability. Our work at the IF has very much done the same. We kicked off a specific working group to focus on interoperability. We quickly found that our other working groups on user-centricity, legal framework and government interactions have all similarly moved to this point also. I should also add that in my own mind, I started out thinking of interoperability in the sense of other identity initiatives. But I've quickly come to realise that there's a, a second axis or a different layer on the interoperability with other systems, such as open banking, payments, privacy, and more. And it's been great to have our experts highlight this here. Looking ahead on FRT, I mentioned at the outset that I'll team up again with Chris Brummer to summarize the hectic time in the digital finance policy world, just as we did a year ago back on episode 51. Looking forward to seeing Chris and picking this up again. I'll also speak with Ivo Genic of the World Bank Group's Consultative Group to Assist the Poor, or CGAP, on some of the financial inclusion issues, like as and Tillman raised here, but also on a fascinating paper that Ivo has recently published on the role of sandboxes. And we'll speak with Kitty Parry, founder and CEO of DeepView on some of the emerging ethical issues with artificial intelligence. Join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for joining us on FRT.